you can cut your risk in half from going from 39 degrees down to 34 degrees. And you can cut your risk in half once again going from 34 degrees down to 30 degrees. And that is the handiest tool that you can use in all the world of avalanches is slope steepness. <laughs> you know, the snowpack is a tricky thing to predict. That's where the most uncertainty is, but whenever there's an uncertainty with a snowpack, then uh, terrain is always the answer. What's up, everyone? Shanti and Mary here. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're continuing on with the second episode of our Winter Backcountry series by talking with a man by the name of Bruce Tremper. Bruce's real claim to fame is that he's considered one of the most foremost experts on avalanches and avalanche safety. He's served 30 plus years in Montana, Alaska, and Utah working with avalanche centers. And actually, he just recently retired from being director of the Forest Service Utah Avalanche Center. And on top of all that, he's written three books on staying alive in avalanche country. Finally, and we're going to be getting into this in more detail in our talks with Bruce, he himself is an avalanche survivor. So here's the idea with Bruce. In our last episode, we talked with Search and Rescue on how to stay safer in the backcountry this winter. We're going to build on that in this episode in our chat with Bruce. With Bruce, we're going to talk snow science, avalanche fatality trends, what to do when you run into a persistent weak layer in the snowpack, Bruce's system or routine for going on a ski tour, and his low-risk travel ritual. He's even going to help us bust some avalanche myths and make you think twice about those zones you thought were safe. But before we get started with Bruce, I want to remind you all of that special deal Gaia GPS is giving to podcast listeners. Right now, Gaia is offering a discount of up to 50, 50 percent on a premium membership for listeners of this podcast. Basically, it's the price of a pizza. And while I love pizza, I consider a Gaia GPS premium membership to be a little more enriching and a little easier on your stomach. So to claim your 50% discount, just go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com slash podcast. Look, it's this simple. If you're snowmobiling, skiing, or snowboarding into the backcountry this winter, Gaia is the perfect tool to find your way. I know I used it on my thru-hike of the AT last year, and it helped me find my way on the trail several times during that last month when it was often covered with snow. And I know Mary who loves skiing in all its forms, uses it in the winter. Now, Mary, I want to bring you in on this. What layers do you like to use in Gaia for backcountry skiing? Yeah, Shanti, thanks for asking. In pre-planning at home on the big screen on my computer, I like to use um, the high-resolution satellite layers to get a look at the terrain from above, especially when I'm going into a new zone. And I like to um, then check in with the new fresh sat layers to see where the snow line is. It kind of gives you a near in time look at, at conditions on the ground. Next, I'll look at the USGS topo for the area I plan to ski and put Gaia GPS's new slope angle layer on top of that. And then I'll draw a route on the map. Right on. Mary, how do you use Gaia once you actually get out there? Well, then I'll, I'll take the route on the map and and uh, save that and that'll sync with my phone and before I leave in the morning I'll add the avalanche forecast layer to see what specific danger ratings are in the area that I'm going to ski and then I'll click on the link within that danger rating uh, zone for more information which will take me right to the avalanche center's website and I'll find out 
all the uh, risk assessment from the center for that specific area I plan to ski. And then I'll download all these layers before I head out so I can use them offline. And when I'm out on the snow, I'll drop some waypoints as I'm I'm heading into the backcountry to some important places like a safe place to cross a creek or places to avoid, like maybe where there's a terrain trap, I'll, I'll stick a waypoint there so I know how to, to avoid that section. But mostly, I like to use the location button. It's very simple. I just press that little uh, location button and I know exactly where I am on the map at any given time during my tour. So that's, that's how I use it. Sweet. Good stuff to know. Thanks, Mary. You know, everyone, Mary, myself, and even Bruce, we aren't the only ones who are lucky enough to be able to use all these maps and layers in Gaia whenever we go out into the backcountry. All those maps and layers are at your disposal, too, when you get a Gaia GPS premium membership. So please, I humbly beseech you, go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get that 50% discount. All right, without further ado, Bruce Tremper, everybody. With us today is one of the world's top avalanche experts, Bruce Tremper. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Bruce. Yeah, it's really exciting to be here. Thank you so much. Hi, no Bruce. Problem. Hi. So we want to start, as we always start, by uh, getting a little bit of the background of our guests. So, Bruce, I believe that uh, you grew up in Montana, so there's a two-part uh, to this opening question. How did you develop your love of the outdoors and skiing, and then what inspired you to get into snow safety? Yeah, it's a, I'm a little bit different than a lot of avalanche people. I was kind of born into it in a lot of ways. I grew up in Missoula, on the outskirts of Missoula, and, and I grew up skiing since I, I can't even remember when, so it must have been two years old or whatever. It seems like I've always had skis on my feet. So, And my father was a skier. He raced on the University of Montana ski team, as I did and my sister did, <laughs> uh, you know, a generation later. And so, yeah, we just grew up skiing. That was, you know, it was just like uh, the famous book, uh, River Runs Through It, that opening line <laughs> from Norman <laughs> McLean. In our family, there was no line between religion and trout fishing. And in our family, there was no line between religion and skiing. <laughs> so my father was uh, on the volunteer ski patrol in Missoula, and Missoula, it, it snowball doesn't have a lot of avalanches, but it's enough that, you know, that he probably thought he should take an avalanche course. So he took uh, a multi-day course from Dr. John Montaigne at Montana State University. And he and this is when I was 10 years old, and I remember him coming home from that, and he was so excited about avalanches. And he just told me all these different things, how they're a slab and how they work and, and that you know, Dr. John Montaigne went up and used explosives to trigger a coordinates and made this big avalanche in front of us. And he was so excited. So that's when I started learning about avalanches, or at least my father first taught me about avalanches. I wasn't a particularly good student in those days. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, how when your parents try to teach you something, you go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, not paying attention. But so. I got uh, seriously distracted by a ski racing career because I grew up skiing, you know, at ski areas. And uh, so I raced uh, for a lot of years. I was on the junior national ski team for three years and a, a couple more years on the, the U.S. development team. And then I raced, you know, for the 
university, so I raced on the NCAA circuit. I love ski racing, but, you know, everybody comes to a point in their life where they have to make their choice between their dreams and, you know, more practical uh, futures, <laughs> which I did. And I finally got serious about school as my mother kept telling me over, and you know, you should quit that crazy ski racing stuff and get serious about school. So I, I finally did. Um, and, and where did that take you? You oh, went to University of Montana, I think? Yeah, I was going to the University of Montana. I was getting a degree in, I started out in pre-med, three years in pre-med, and then switched to geology because I liked it so much better. Yeah, when I finished my degree in geology in, in Missoula, by that point, my parents had moved to Bozeman. And so they moved the family to Bozeman. So my three younger brothers graduated from school in Bozeman. Uh, and so visiting them a lot, I really fell in love with Bozeman. I'd always liked Bozeman. So for graduate school, you know, that's where I went. <laughs> and that way I could study under the famous Dr. John Montaigne. I really wanted to, you know, learn about avalanches from him as my father did a generation earlier. And what year was that, Bruce? Um, I moved to Bozeman Let's see, I think it was 1977 or 78. Um, let's say it's 78. Uh, and, and when I went there, I, uh, I needed to keep working. So I got a job on the Bridge of Bowl Ski Patrol, actually working at Bridge of Bowl building uh, chairlifts because they were building uh, a couple new chairlifts in those, at that time. So I did that in the fall, and when that was done, I they Bridgeable hired me to be a lift operator. And then, when they realized that I was a hard worker and a good skier, they put me on the ski patrol right away. And uh, I also had a f friend that I grew up ski racing with, Doug Richmond, who uh, was my good buddy. And so he he you know put me on the ski patrol right away, and that changed my life. I I was out you know doing avalanche control every morning. And, you know, going out with a pack full of explosives and making avalanches for money. I mean, what could be better than that? <laughs> you know, Had you had any uh, personal experiences with avalanches prior to uh, being on avalanche control? Well, not a lot. I was involved in one smaller avalanche. I mean, these days I would call it a slough more than an avalanche. Uh, when I was doing a five-day ski trip from north to south in Glacier National Park, north of Missoula, uh, with my friend, which is another story. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. But uh, yeah, I ended up falling off this cliff and went going down in this slough. And, um, you know, I really should have died in that thing, but I didn't. And so that was a wake-up call. Uh, but um, yeah, that was the only avalanche I was in before I started uh, at Bridger Bowl. But never, nevertheless, you got up off that cliff dive and went right back at it, huh, Bruce? <laughs> yeah. so, a true lover of skiing right there. So you've been at this a really long time um, since the 70s. So what's, what's changed with avalanche um, kind of forecasting, sort of what we know about snow science? Has it changed much in the decades you've been involved in it? Yeah, it's changed a lot. And, you know, looking back on it, it was just a whole different world. I mean, in those days, um, 
there, you know, these, this is back when people wore ski straps, you know, safety straps on their skis, not ski brakes. And it was before avalanche rescue beacons. Uh, well, they were just uh, coming along then. Bridger Bowl had just bought some. And so it was kind of a new thing at Bridge, Bridge of Bowl. Before that, we just drug around an avalanche cord behind us. Yeah, after I quit ski racing, I was bored with ski resorts. So I started skiing the backcountry more and more. And, you know, I didn't know hardly anything about avalanches, just the little thing, little bit that my father taught me. And, and I, I guess there was must have been an avalanche handbook around the house, too, that I must have puttered around with. But um, looking back at it, I, I knew nothing about avalanches. I thought, you know, I was an avalanche expert of some kind, but <laughs> there's no, I, I wasn't. I was just a raw beginner. There's kind of a story at the very beginning of your book where you kind of enlighten yourself that you, in fact, are not an avalanche expert. Yeah, I was working uh, building lifts at Bridger Bowl. And um, so it, it was a day when we were doing the what they call a load test for the lift. That's the last thing you do where the inspectors come and you put a sandbag, a couple sandbags in each chair to load it up as, as if there's people riding it. And you run it through its paces and the, the, and the state inspectors are there watching everything. And so uh, my job was to uh, go to ski tower to tower um, and tighten the, uh, the bolts at the bottom of the tower with a, a torque wrench. And so that's where I was caught in an avalanche. And yeah, that was a huge wake-up call. I mean, that thing really should have killed me uh, for the second time. <laughs> yeah, it changed my life. I, I went, whoa, I want to learn as much as I can about avalanches. And there I was. I was at Bridge of Bowl, one of the most active avalanche uh mountains in the country or ski areas in the country with all these ski patrollers that were some of the top avalanche experts in the country and near a university where they had some of the top avalanche researchers and uh, teachers in the country. So, I mean, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> there I was uh, learning about avalanches from all these experts and going out every day with a pack full of explosives, making avalanches. And, you know, you can't learn about avalanches any better than that. Um, you you get instant feedback. You know, you see the snow, you see the weather, um, you feel the snow, and then you take your explosives and you test it, you know, 10 or 20 times a day with these explosives. And you get this instant feedback and you learn about avalanches really, really quickly. So uh, that, that's by far the best way to learn about avalanches. And that feeds off an earlier question where Mary asked about what's changed in the industry in the last uh, 40 years. Like, So this goes to like snow science and avalanche forecasting and all that. Would you say it's been it's become more exact in the last 40 years being able to do avalanche forecasting, snow science, or do we still have a lot of variables that we don't know about? Yeah, we've learned a lot science-wise. Um, things have changed a lot. In some ways, things haven't changed at all because you really can't forecast them from the office. I mean, you got to do it up close and personal, which is the fun part of the job, which is good. Um, you need to get out there and put your head in the snow. You need to dig uh, snow pits and test those weak layers. And we've got all kinds of new nice tests, but they're pretty low tech. You know, you make a column and you start pounding on that column harder and harder and see if it if it breaks and if it propagates a fracture and what layers it works on. So 
that's uh, was the same back in uh, when I first started, but we have a little bit more sophisticated tests now. And then the science of avalanches has come a long, long way. It's took a long, it's taken a long time for researchers to figure out exactly how avalanches work. I mean, um, one of the professors I studied under was Bob Brown in the in the engineering department at Montana State, and he was literally a rocket scientist. He came straight from NASA, and so he he got really interested in avalanches because he liked to ski, and so. You know, he told Ted Lang, the other uh, professor there, says, yeah, let's let's dive into this and, um, you know, spend a month or two and we'll get this avalanche stuff figured out, you know, for these people. <laughs> and uh, years later, they're still at it. And it, it's taken some of the top scientists in Europe and Switzerland spending millions of dollars um, studying this for years and years before. And I think they're finally, you know, I think they're finally on to how exactly how avalanches work, which is uh, that would take another hour for me to explain. So, yeah. So Bruce, you were at Bridger Bowl, of course, and then you moved over to Big Sky Resort for a number of years. Um, eventually, you left the ski areas and you moved to Utah. What were you doing there? Yeah, I um, I had been an avalanche forecaster in Alaska for the Alaska Avalanche Center, do, being doing backcountry avalanche forecasting, which is what I've wanted to do for a long time. So that was my dream job, but the funding uh, ended there uh, abruptly. And the oil prices plummeted in Alaska, and they fired everybody in Alaska except for the teachers and the cops. And so I was without a job, but the directorship for the Utah Avalanche Center was coming open at exactly that time. So I applied there and um, luckily got hired. And that was another time where I really hit the jackpot because that was exactly the job that I've always wanted. And I got it. And so once I got that job, I said, well, I'm not going to do better than this. There's only about eight of these jobs in the country, and I got one of them. And, and I felt so lucky. So this is like a dream job. Hashtag dream job, right? Yeah. So, And how many years did you stay doing that? Well, I was the director there for 29 years. And during that time, you wrote a few books, right? Yeah. I wrote uh, first uh, book was Staying Alive in Avalanche Train. I kind of just took everything in my brain and did a dump into a book because I thought, you know, I need to capture all this stuff so that other people can learn about avalanches too. It's kind of a step-by-step -step tutorial of how how do you can you become an avalanche expert? How can you become an avalanche geek? And then I realized that I needed to write a simpler book, so I kind of condensed it down to the essentials, and that's what it's called, Avalanche Essentials. So those two books, and then there's a little fold-out pocket field guide as well. All those are published by Mountaineers Books. So staying alive in avalanche terrain, I, I see that when I open it up, it's pretty technical. It's got kind of a lot of statistics and science-based knowledge. I, I kind of view it as like a course study book. Um, is that what it's meant to be? Yeah, people have used that book for avalanche classes for years, and, and, and it's mostly for level two avalanche classes and level three, so it's a little bit more advanced. And then for, you know, level one avalanche classes, they usually use um, avalanche essentials. Bruce, you've been doing this for quite a while. So how many avalanches have you yourself been caught in? 
I've been caught in two avalanches, um, um, maybe not counting one that was just a slough that I was just talking about. Okay. So there was that one at Bridget Bowl, and then another one, I just happened to get too close to a cornice and broke it off. And I, I couldn't tell it was a cornice. It was behind a line of trees and a, and a bush between me and the edge. So who would have known? But it broke back where I was and took me down over a cliff. Uh, you know, that will probably never happen <laughs> in a million years again. And so on each one of those times you've been caught, um, how buried were you? Yeah, each time I was buried only up to my waist, luckily. Uh, but I got tumbled. And um, and on that second one, the cornice one, I hit a tree and wore a brace on my knee for you know a couple months. Okay. And so you live to tell about those, obviously. But, you know, others haven't been so lucky. Fatality rates... Um, I mean, it's a real thing. Avalanches are serious. Um, I think it's maybe 30 per year. We're approaching 30 per year uh, deaths in the U.S. for fatalities. Does there seem to be a demographic tied to that? Yeah, the the demographics for who gets killed in avalanches have changed a lot through the years. And it's always kind of the new kids on the block that are getting killed. So in the old days, back in the 50s and 60s, it was people at ski areas getting killed because they were building skiers and more and more avalanche terrain. So the people who did the ski patrolling and just skiing at ski areas had to learn the hard way, and then they figured it out, and now they do avalanche control or avalanche mitigation, as we call it these days. And very few people get killed inside of ski resorts anymore. And then came all the telemark skiers in the 1970s, the people who were using uh, Nordic gear, you know, free-heeled, lightweight gear to go into the backcountry, and I was one of them. Um, and so there was a flood of people, you know, wearing wool knickers and, you know, with <laughs> wool hats with the flaps on them and, you know, crunching on Gorp out there, and I was one of them. And uh, we thought we were so cool, but we didn't know anything about avalanches, and so a lot of people got killed. And then uh, everybody took the avalanche classes and learned, and then they uh, kind of, th those numbers uh, started dying out. And then came the snowboarders and the snowmobilers <laughs> and the snowshoers, and they spiked up uh, learning the hard way. And then now, for the last 10 years or so, it's kind of flattened out or kind of gone downhill because it used to be over 30 avalanche fatalities per year. And I think we're below that now, if I'm not mistaken, for a running five-year average or something like that. Is there any activity that you consider the most high risk, like going out skiing in the backcountry versus going out snowmobiling in the backcountry? Um, I know it depends on the terrain, but do you think there's any activity that's more naturally dangerous, leaves you more prone? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think snowmobiling is any more dangerous than skiing. Uh, I think it was for a few years there because people just didn't know about avalanches and they needed to come up to speed knowledge-wise. But, um, you know, snowmobiles have the disadvantage that you can cover, you know, 10 to 100 times more terrain in a day than you can on skis. So if there's any instabilities out there, you're going to find them on a snowmobile. They have the advantages they're heavier and have more power so you can escape off the avalanches a little bit better. Um, so people are, you know, triggering avalanches and getting away with things that skiers or climbers or especially snowshoers cannot. So there's pluses and minuses. And I don't know if there's any one uh, that's more dangerous. 
And how about areas, you know, like uh, Colorado versus Utah versus Montana versus, you know, the coastal states of Washington and California? Um, is there a higher fatality rate in any of those states due to terrain or our climate? Yeah, Colorado has always led the nation in avalanche fatalities. And there's two reasons. The main reason is the kind of snowpack which it'll take a little bit to explain, but it's more stable out on the coast where the storms are wetter and warmer. And then in Colorado, it doesn't snow very much. And so the snowpack is thin and it is colder there. And that promotes uh, the growth of what we call faceted snow, which is the by far the most common kind of weak layer that causes avalanche accidents. So that's very weak uh, tender snow. It, it's like a house of cards. It doesn't hold up very much weight. And so when you slam a, a slab of snow down on top of that, like a snowstorm or a wind storm that piles weight on top of it, it can't hold the weight up. So it's like putting a brick on top of a pile of potato chips and it collapses that layer and creates avalanches that, you know, that propagates outwards. So Colorado is kind of where Depthor was invented, as near as I can tell, because you need a thin snow, snowpack with cold temperatures. That faceted snow is caused by temperature gradients within the snow. So a big term alert here. Temperature gradient is just a fancy way of saying a large difference in temperature across a certain distance. So with thin snowpacks, cold temperatures, you have a big, steep difference in temperature from the top of the snowpack to the bottom of the snowpack, which grows those crystals. They don't fall out of the sky. They grow in place. So that's what makes them so tricky. And we call them persistent weak layers because they continue to produce avalanches long after they're loaded up with weight. So, you know, it's sunny after a storm. It's been five days since that storm. And you think that it should be fine, but it's not. You go out there and it's just waiting. The, you know, it's been loaded with weight and the knees are still shaking on that, uh, that very weak, weak layer. And you come along and you help to collapse that thing that collapse propagates. That's what makes it so dangerous. That's what makes Colorado so dangerous. And the second thing is Colorado has a lot of people. So people times avalanches mean avalanche deaths. Yes, they're out there enjoying the steep slopes that they have and the high, high mountains. So who can blame them? Um, but so this year, what are you hearing this year about how busy the backcountry is going to be? Have you heard anything? Yeah, I think it's going to be nuts this year because it's been nuts all summer. I mean, during COVID, you know, every trailhead is just crammed with people. I mean, there's nothing else to do. And being outside is the perfect thing to do in COVID. You know, you got all this fresh air in between you and social distancing. And I've spent a lot of time outdoors um, since COVID started. And it's going to continue over the winter. It looks like it's going to be worse over the winter. So I'm really worried. Um, there's going to be a lot of people in the backcountry um, ski areas are probably going to be limited in what they can do. I think a lot of them are limiting the number of people that are there. And so the backcountry equipment, you can't even buy it anymore more in the stores. Things are sold out, you know, um, and it's going to get flooded with people, with all the wrong kind of people. Like I said, it's the new kids on the block that are getting killed in avalanches. And we're going to have a lot of new kids on the block this winter, people who just don't know the basics of avalanches. And I think it's going to be bad. 
And so should people be looking for classes out there? What should they be looking for to educate they themselves? Should be, yeah, people that are going out really need to educate themselves about avalanches first. All the avalanche classes I've heard are completely booked up uh, this winter. You just And they're always quite popular uh, anyway. So you can't even get into a class anymore from what I've heard. But luckily, there's good videos out there. And everybody should bring themselves up to speeds on the basics of avalanches and start out with the Know Before You Go video that we produced um, starting a number of years ago. We're on like about our third uh, version of that uh, that we produced in Utah. And it's a great film. It, you know, it, it has high production quality at one. It, it was part of the Banff Mountain Film Festival uh, one year. So it's really fun to watch and people can see what avalanches are and see them in motion and see all these experts talking about avalanches. And just that just in just in 15 minutes or 13 minutes, whatever it is, it covers all the basics. So everybody needs to start out with that. Just Google know before you go avalanche or you can see a link off of our website or a lot of other uh, websites. So it's called know before you go. You can go to Vimeo or YouTube or whatever and see it. So I guess this is kind of the meat and bones of what we want to get into, because you have been in the industry for so long. You are such an expert on this. And then talking about the no before you go and talking to all the people who are going to be going out into the backcountry this year, um, both experienced and inexperienced. So over the years, have you developed a plan or process for each time you go out on a backcountry tour that would probably be good to be sharing with our audience so that they can have a plan process each time they go out into the backcountry. Yeah, I go through a system and that's what I always preach is the system is the solution because human beings are not very good at making decisions. <laughs> Most, a lot of the time. You know, uh, we used to think that we're logical creatures, but we are definitely not. Uh, so you need a system. And what I do is first you have to have the right equipment. You have to have, you know, an avalanche rescue beacon uh, so you can find your partner who's uh, buried under the snow. That's the only way you'd be able to part find them in time to save their life. You need a probe and a shovel. And if you can afford it and carry, can carry the extra weight, you know, have an avalanche airbag pack. And uh, so once you have that equipment, then what I do before I go out is I do what we call pre-trip planning. So you get on the computer, you do all your research, you see what the avalanche center is doing, you see, you know, where it's safe, where it's not safe, and what kind of slopes you should avoid, and what kind of slopes you can go to. And then you have to, and this is the hardest part, I think, is trying to figure out what kind of terrain can I go to with this kind of snowpack? What kind of a terrain is appropriate for this kind of snowpack? And it's a very difficult thing to, to match them up uh, uh, because... A lot of us don't know the terrain very well, and we, um, um, and, and that's where it help, it helps to have something like Gaia Maps, where you can put a, a you know a color coded slope steepness on there to figure out where you can go and where you probably can't go with certain kind of conditions. So do your research, figure out um, maybe from guidebooks or talking to your friends what places you can go. And then follow what they're saying on the avalanche forecast of what kind of slopes you can go to. What map layers are you using out there on Gaia? And then what's your process for like route planning? Yeah, I love Gaia for pre-trip planning. And while I travel, I mean, I, I just, if, if I'm in the desert and the mountains anywhere, I've just always got it. And I'm just, 
you know, walking around too much with my nose in it. Uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous app. I love it. But um, what I do for pre-trip planning for avalanches is I get out Gaia and then just pull up the layer that has the slope steepness on it. And so there's color-coded layers that you can uh, plot on there that anything over 30 degrees, it'll mark it with a certain color and maybe over 35 degrees, another color and so on. So I think those are really, really handy, especially if you're going to a new area because slope steepness is really, really important with avalanches. It bullseyes, the most, most activity happens right around 39 degrees, plus or minus five degrees, steeper or gentler. So steeper slopes then, you know, like for, uh, you know, 45 degrees, the avalanche activity drops off. And then on the gentler slopes, of course, it drops off. Why is 39 the magic number? Yeah, slope steepness is really, really important in, in avalanches. It bullseyes right around 39 degrees. That's where slabs can stick on to a slope, but it's not so steep that it sloughs all the time that they don't build up into slabs. So it turns out that 39 degrees is exactly the right angle. So plus or minus five degrees either way from that. Um, steeper than 45 degrees, it sloughs all the time. They're steeper than 39 degrees, it sloughs more often. Uh, so it doesn't build up into slabs. And then when you get gentler than about 30 degrees, it's just not steep enough. You know, there's too much friction and not enough gravity. So they're really sensitive to avalanches. So you can cut your risk in half from going from 39 degrees down to 34 degrees. And you can cut your risk in half once again, going from 34 degrees down to 30 degrees. And that is the handiest tool that you can use in all the world of avalanches is slope steepness. <laughs> you know, the snowpack is a tricky thing to predict. Um, and uh, that's where the most uncertainty is, but Whenever there's an uncertainty with a snowpack, then uh, terrain is always the answer. Slope steepness, slope steepness, slope steepness. It comes back to that over and over. Avalanches can be pretty simple. So maybe, Bruce, you're checking in with your av local avalanche center and seeing what the risk assessment is, um, what the risk report is, and then making your decision on what level of steepness slope you want to ski on that day? Is that how you use it? Somewhere? Yeah. So the local avalanche center will tell you where the avalanches are occurring. And typically, especially in the early season, they tend to occur on the more northerly facing slopes, the slopes that face the north half of the compass, because they're colder there. That's where the weak layers grow. And that's they're colder and the weak layers are preserved longer on those slopes. So a lot of times they'll say avoid north through east facing slopes above you know, 10,000 feet that are steeper than about, you know, 30 degrees. And so you can just, you know, program all that into your app and then find the slopes that are like that um, and and avoid them. So it's that simple. And, and if they're saying, you know, there's no avalanches occurring on the south-facing slopes because the sun has stabilized it, you know, quite a bit, then that's where you should head is the south-facing slopes. You know, if you want to get on a 39-degree slope, then go on the south-facing slope. So they'll tell you where it's safe, where it's not safe. And a lot of people just don't believe it, that why would a north-facing slope be more dangerous than a south-facing slope? But, but there's a huge amount of difference, according to the snowpack, on those two slopes. Interesting. So 
you've checked the avalanche forecast um, from the local avalanche center. You've looked at the maps to plan your route, where you're going to go. Um, now you're trying to figure out who you're going to go with. Tell us about how important that is. Yeah, so picking your partners is really important, obviously. Maybe maybe it's one of the most important things that we do. Because, you know, if you're going out on a dangerous day, you don't want to be going out with uh, somebody who, you know, your cousin who's visiting from Florida who <laughs> doesn't know about avalanches, and you have to teach him how to use a beacon first. So, you know, you do that on a low-danger day. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to pick your partners uh, really, really carefully, because they're the ones that are going to have to dig you out of the snow. They're the ones that you're going to make decisions with. And as far as partners, I never, I almost never go out with more than four people. Uh, I think between two and four people is is ideal. Um, once you get above four people, things start going haywire. There's always somebody that's not getting the memo. It's really difficult to communicate when you get above four people. So keep your group small. Wow, that's a that's good advice. So communicating with the group um, on your way to the trailhead, what are you doing on the way to the trailhead? Are you looking for clues even as you're driving up there or or as you get to the parking lot? Tell us what you're looking at when you're going skiing. I think the hardest part about pre-trip planning is figuring out where you're going to go that day. That's what pre-trip planning is all about. So you do that by looking at the computer. You maybe call your friends on the phone the night before and talk about some things. But if you can carpool and all ride up in the same car together, that's the key because you really need, because a lot of times it takes us the whole time going there, you know, kicking around ideas to figure out, okay, where can we go? Where can't we go? And, you know, there's some places you definitely can't go on certain days because you get boxed in. There's, once you get up there, there's no terrain choices for you. Um, then you're going to be too tempted to get on something dangerous. So you need to go to places where you do have terrain choices. And so once you've figured out where to go driving up, then when you get to the trailhead, then the next thing I do is, of course, do a beacon check. Everybody turns their beacons on. Me, I always turn it on when I leave the house. When I get dressed in the morning, that's just part of getting dressed. Turn it on, put put it on, turn it on, take it off, turn it off. That's my mantra. Put it on, turn it on, take it off, turn it off. And I don't turn it off until I get home at night and get undressed. That way, you won't screw up. <laughs> always have a routine, right? Always have a routine. The system is what protects you. So... In Utah, all these canyons are very steep and avalanche prone. And so that's another reason why I always want my beacon on when I'm going up and down the canyons. Because, you know, cars get hit by avalanches around here. Yes. So when you're driving along or you're getting to the trailhead, um, are you actually looking for clues and kind of checking conditions as you, even as you approach your ski uh, area that you're going to ski in that day? Yeah, when I'm driving to the trailhead, I'm looking at the mountains. And it's better if I'm not driving, as my wife has figured out, because I'm doing too much rubbernecking, uh, looking for avalanches and looking in which way the wind is blowing off the ridges and the clouds. And so it's better if she drives while I do the rubbernecking, you know. And, you know, look at all the clues. Look at for those telltale horizontal fracture lines in the snow. That's from slab avalanches uh, breaking off, which is the kind we have to worry about. 
and um, you know, develop your eyeballs to see those things. And are they recent? Um, how old are they? Uh, if they look really fresh and there's lots of them and the ski areas are doing lots of booms with the explosives when you get up there, well, you know it's dangerous. I mean, that's a bullseye clue. The best sign of avalanches are, guess what? Avalanches. avalanches. <laughs> and it's so obvious it's, it's the clue most people miss. You know, they walk past a recent avalanche and go to an identical slope and get caught in an avalanche. So you're looking for clues, avalanches, you know, where is the wind blowing the snow? Um, how much new snow is there? You're checking all that stuff out. Once you get to the trailhead and you've do, done on your beacon check, and that's another opportunity to kind of talk over with people, or if somebody's coming in another car, that's your opportunity. You do a beacon check with them and say, okay, what's the plan? It gives you an automatic opening to talk about what the plan is, which is really, really important. And some of the other things talking about the plan, like when you're talking with your group, should you always be designating like communication signals or like hand signals, um, you know, distancing between each other, uh, regrouping points? What are the main things you should be communicating with your group um, in terms of just actual in-group communication so everyone's on the same page? Yeah, I go out, like to go out with people that I'm used to communicating with, with friends that I know really well. And you know, and if, and if I'm with new people, a lot of times I'll give them a little tailgate safe, safety session before we take off and just say, look, I want to play this safety nerd here. Um, this is what I want to see today. Uh, I don't want anybody to just bolt off and break trail all the way to the top so we don't see you until we get to the top because that's really dangerous. I mean, we need to stop at decision points and get together and talk and say, what's the plan? Okay, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Why are we going to do it? Because you need those decision points where you have an excuse to stop and talk with your group. And then, um, and so I, I kind of agree where those are going to be. Well, that's one of the main reasons for digging a snow pit on the way up to your destination is because it's an excuse to not only gather some really, really important information, but everybody wants to see what you're finding in the snow pit. So they naturally stop by and it's a perfect opening to say, man, I'm finding a nasty weak layer in here. I don't like the looks of this. I think, you know, we're not going to be able to go to what we planned today. I think we better start out over here on these gentle slopes. Is it on a case-by-case -case basis, like each time it feels appropriate to dig a snow pit, or is there like a designated distance, like after a certain number of meters or miles, that's when you dig your next snow pit? Yeah, where to dig a snow pit is uh, really difficult to describe. It's more of an art than a science. And um, I dig mine on a slope that's representative of the place that I'm most worried about, but not on the slope that I'm most worried about, because that's <laughs> going to kill you. So you can find lots of little test slopes, you know, something, a little rollover someplace or the side of a road cut or anything. Um, you know, don't pass up those things. Those are very, very valuable clues. If you're if you're on a see a road cut, go jump on it and, you know, or take your snowmobile and bank up on it and see how it responds. Are you triggering avalanches there or a little Tesla, small little thing that's not going to kill you? Jump on it and then take out your shovel and dig there. Then it's identical steepness and aspect to the slope that you're going to. You can gather a lot of valuable information. If you don't start gathering that information until you get on the slope itself or, you know, or if you don't gather information until you get to the top of the slope, that's way too late. 
because it's too late to turn back. Most people are not going to turn back at that point. So Bruce, let's say you dig the pit. Let's say you dig this pit and, or you perform, you jump on a slope that's representative of what you plan to ski or snowmobile, snowmobile on. And what you see kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies and you don't, don't really like what you see. Um, kind of makes you a little nervous. Uh, what should you do then? Yeah, if you uh, jump on a slope and it's avalanching and everything seems to be avalanching and you dig in the snow and you don't like what you're seeing, you know, every time you try to isolate a column and tap on the edge of it, it's propagating across and it's really tender. Well, that gives you a lot of good information. You know, make all your decisions based on evidence, not on belief. Um, That's a really, really important clue because human beliefs can really lead us astray. So because you have confirmation bias, which is a, one of the human factors that we can talk about at a different time. That was actually the one I wanted to get into now. I mean, we're talking about the specific steps that are taken. And then now it's like, what human factors need to be taken into consideration? Like, what are the ones, or maybe a better way of asking that is like, what do we see that often happens with avalanche accidents and fatalities where there was a human element that wasn't taken into account. When we teach avalanche classes, we usually teach what we call human factors. And that's really the wrong name for it, but it's just kind of what we've always called it. And really it's, um, you know, mental shortcuts and cognitive biases uh, to be a more uh, accurate term. And it also includes communication. It includes um, group dynamics. It includes all these different things. But, uh, you know, we could talk about human factors forever, but there's a lot of different kinds of systematic biases that we all have as human beings. But, you know, we think we're logical creatures and that we can analyze our risk accurately all the time. But, you know, research after research shows that that's just not true. You know, the economists know now that we don't make our decisions that way. Marketing people that are trying to sell us everything, they know how we think, you know, it's not, logic has nothing to do with it. They use all these same human factors that lead us astray when we're in the bad country. And I think one of the leading human factors is confirmation bias, as it's called. In other words, you know, we're always saying, oh, I'll believe that when I see it. But really the way our minds work is we see what we already believe. So we see what we believe. So you have to be really careful with belief because it can lead you astray. Because I'll throw this out to you, and most people will disagree when they first hear about this, but most of what any of us believe is not true. (laughs) <laughs> most of what we Explain. believe is not true. And and everybody laughs when I say that, but I'll challenge you on this. Take a belief that you have. Spend a year studying it uh, in the university, reading all the research papers, everything about that belief that you have. Uh, you know, throw a lot of time into it. And I can guarantee you that belief is going to be very different after you've done a lot of research than it is now. It might be the same, but be more nuanced. It might have changed a little bit. It might have completely flipped around. But most of our beliefs come from just way too little amount of data. That's usually from our friends mentioning something or the way our friends believe and so on. So be really, really careful of beliefs. 
Why do I yeah. feel like that is so incredibly relevant now more than ever? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, just the sneaking suspicion in me right now. <laughs> so, you know, Bruce, as you're talking about these human factors, one that always sticks in my mind is like this overcommitment, like overcommitment to a plan where people are not willing to go out there and see what their observations are telling them about the snow conditions when they finally get out there and dig a pit or maybe test a slope with a ski pole test or something like that. And they just are overcommitted to their plan to ski a certain slope. Is that kind of a danger in your mind? Yeah, I think it's really dangerous when you have a goal or a place where you um, say that, okay, we're going to go ski or snowmobile that slope because um, then it controls all the rest of your decisions. And you, your decisions should be based on evidence. You should gather evidence and let the facts make the decision, not your beliefs. And so that's really important to keep those things very, very separate. That's why the system protects you. The system is the solution. And then maybe staying flexible as you go along in your day. Um, what you see might be safe to you, early on on your trip and maybe you gain elevation and, and conditions change in, enough to make you question your safety and maybe you should turn back at that point. Is that a good idea? Yeah. If I didn't turn around when I saw that things were dangerous, I would have died years and years ago. <laughs> I turn around all the time. I'll get out there and say, whoa, I don't like this. We can't go there. Let's go here instead. Let's go, go to that nice, safe slope that's 25 degrees and south-facing. It's nice powder. We can have a great time on that slope. We ain't going up there today. You know, there's kind of these myths that are go along with backcountry skiing. You know, people have different ideas that a slope could be safe just based on a, a, a bunch of different observations. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about these myths that might ex exist out there. Like, for instance, how about this? Other people skied it, so it's safe. Is that a myth or is that true? Yeah, a lot of people think that ski tracks or snowmobile tracks on a slope mean it's safe. And not necessarily, especially with persistent weak layers that are responsible for most avalanche accidents. They're famous for, you know, breaking on the 10th person or the 20th person or whatever. The tracks don't mean anything on those kind of weak layers, especially deeply, bur deeply buried weak layers with that kind of, um, uh, that, that kind of snowpack with deeply buried persistent weak layers. Um, ski tracks and snowmobile tracks are, I mean, it's better than nothing. It just means it has been tested by several volunteer stability testers before you got there. And uh, I love volunteer stability testers. Usually, yeah, I... <laughs> I go out at the crack of noon. I, I you know, <laughs> leave the house at the crack of noon because then other people are breaking the trail before you. And most important, other people are triggering the avalanches before you. So you get up to someplace and they've already triggered it or the slope is already filled full of skier and snowmobile tracks. So it's already been tested. So that means it's safer than without those tracks. It does mean something, but not everything, especially with persistent weak layers, deeply buried. Uh, tracks really don't mean that much. What about a treed slope? Is it, it's like, oh, there's a lot of trees on this slope, so there's not going to be a slide. 
Yeah, trees are what we call anchors. So um, they are can help hold the slab in place. It's like putting a thumbtack through a piece of cardboard and, and putting it on the wall. So they can help to hold that slab in place. The trouble with trees, anchors like trees and rocks, is that if they don't hold the slab in place, then they suddenly become obstacles that you're going to hit on the way down. It's a double-edged sword. And trees are very, very dangerous when you're sliding through them at freeway speeds, as you can imagine. So avalanches can happen on treed slopes. Yeah, avalanches can happen on treed slopes. Uh, if they're really thick trees that it's hard to ski through or hard to snowmobile through, then trees generally can hold things in place. But if they're, they get pretty sparse, you know, where you can ski through them easily and snowmobile through them easily, they're dangerous. I mean, you can trigger avalanches on slopes like that. They're not a guarantee. But those trees are also, anch are also those anchors are also obstacles that we can hit uh, when we're headed down or when we're taking a ride in an avalanche going at very, very fast speeds. Okay, here's another one for you, Bruce. It hasn't snowed in a whole week. So it's got to be safe. You know, snow is exactly like people. It doesn't like rapid change. <laughs> you know, so if you raise gas prices two bucks a gallon overnight, you know, you're going to have riots at the gas pumps. But if you raise that, you know, slow enough, nobody will even notice. And the snowpack is exactly the same way. So it doesn't like rapid changes. It doesn't like uh, a big snowstorm at suddenly adding weight on to very weak layers. It doesn't like wind that can deposit snow 10 times more rapidly than snow falling out of the sky because that adds a lot of weight uh, on top of those buried weak layers. And that slab is stiff and it's kind of uh, been ground up by the wind. And so it can propagate fractures uh, quickly. So most of the time, snow and wind um, is a dangerous uh clue so that, that that is your most obvious clue that um the snowpack is dangerous because it's been rapidly loaded up with weight and recently um the longer time this uh, has elapsed since it's been loaded up with weight the safer it gets it gets more and more stable each day but the problem is if you're dealing with persistent weak layers like facets snow depth hoar or surface hoar uh it gains strength very, very slowly. So sometimes, uh, especially with those kind of weak layers, a week later is not long enough. So you can st still trigger avalanches on those persistently buried weak layers. The most important thing is to jump on test slopes, dig down and see if it's still propagating a fracture or not. How about this myth? It is low angle slope, so it's safe. It's got to be safe. It's It's not even steep. Yeah, it's like 30 degrees. Yeah, most of the time, low angle slopes are safe, you know, less than 30 degrees. Uh, it's very rare for avalanches to occur on those slopes. The trouble is you have to look at what they're connected to because uh, slopes that are locally connected to steeper terrain are the same as the steep terrain because you might collapse the slope on a 25 degree slope and that collapse travels uphill of you onto a 35 degree slope and that 35 degree slope is going to get plunked down on top of your head because you triggered it from a gentle slope. 
Sometimes you're on a, a you know a gentle slope on a ridge that's above that's locally connected to steeper terrain below you. You can collapse the slope there, and then sometimes in rare conditions, especially with persistent weak layers, it can suck up onto that ridge a few feet and take people down. That happened to me once, and uh, people do get killed that way. Absolutely. So. With all these in mind, what are some kind of low-risk travel practices people can employ if they get kind of spooked out there and just want to have a safe day skiing safe terrain? Yeah, when you're traveling in the backcountry, and especially if you're on or near avalanche terrain, you need to follow these low-risk travel uh, rituals. And these were taught to me uh, by ski patrollers, and they've practiced them for years. And so some of those, uh, and I have a top 10 list. I'm not sure if I could rattle off the list without looking at it, because every time I write the list, I change it a little bit. But the most important ones on the list of the top 10 um, safe, uh, we used to call them safe travel rituals, but now we call them low-risk travel rituals, is uh, go one at a time, or at least spread out. So only expose one person to the avalanche hazard at a time. The others wait in a safe spot so that if something goes wrong, they can rescue them. They can dig them out of the snow. Distance is your friend in avalanche terrain. You want to spread out as much as possible. You don't want to involve the whole group in an avalanche. Uh, that, that way everybody dies. There's nobody to do the rescue. So one at a time or at least uh, split your group in half, spread out. Distance is your friend. And that includes the uphill, where we tend to stack up if we're breaking a trail uphill on skis and all talking to each other. You know, you, you have to uh, be disciplined and split your group in half or at least spread out. The second thing I was taught by my avalanche mentors on the ski patrol is never cross above other people. Never cross above your partner. Because that's tantamount to attempted homicide. Because when you, you're trying to trigger an avalanche on top of your friend, and they used to teach me about this, uh, they would, if I ever crossed above somebody else when I'm out on an avalanche mitigation route, uh, this one friend would, you know, uh, hike up to me, swinging his ski pole at me, said, you just tried to kill me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and he wasn't scared. But he just wanted to make the point. And you can see that I remembered it all these years later, that I should never, ever cross above your partners or anybody else. One at a time, don't cross above your partners. Number three, always have an escape route pre-planned. So if you're gonna be crossing avalanche train, you wanna be crossing it uh, at a 45 degree angle with your speed built up. So if you do trigger an avalanche there, your in theory, your momentum will take you off of that moving slab over to an island of safety that you, can, um, that you won't get caught in an avalanche. An island of safety might be a gentler terrain, a spur ridge or something that's 25 degrees instead of 35 degrees. Or it might be a really thick uh, group of trees that you can grab onto so you don't get taken down. Um, so that's what we call used to call a ski cut, but you can do them on a snowmobile or a snowboard or whatever. You can't do them on snowshoes. <laughs> but... You know, keep your speed up, and we call them slope cuts now. Keep your speed up, go to 45 degrees. So don't just jump into slope and start cranking turns or doing a high mark. Your first time on that slope, put a good slope cut across it. So um, uh, you do have an escape route if something goes wrong. Another rule that I like to practice is never go first. 
<laughs> Send your best friend. Best, you know, somebody's got to go first. But, uh, you know, let there's plenty of volunteer stability testers out there that are more than willing uh, to be Joe Gnarly Powder Pig and go first. You say, yeah, you can have first tracks and let them test the slope before you. I'm a, I'm a master at getting to the top and start munching on my lunch and getting out my phone and, and say, oh yeah, you go ahead and wait till everybody gets cold and let them go first. Let them test the slope. Um, yeah, somebody's got to go first, but you know, let other people do it. These are good tips to know, um, but I think another thing we all would love to know is you've done everything right you fought you've obeyed the low risk travel practices you've been smart you're with your group but things can happen no matter what you know sometimes you're just totally at nature's mercy so you do get caught in an avalanche when you're out there what should you do when you're caught in an avalanche yeah, everybody wants to know what do I do if you get caught in an avalanche, and it's kind of the wrong question because um, it's better to do whatever you can to not get caught in an avalanche. Because once you get caught in an avalanche, you've kind of run out of choices. There's not a whole lot of things you can do. A lot of people think you can, there's a lot of things you can do, but um, the avalanche kind of does with you what it will. But if you do get caught in an avalanche, hopefully you've got your speed built up doing a slope cut and your momentum will take you off that moving slab to an island of safety where you won't get caught in an avalanche. Or, you know, try to get off that slab. Sometimes you're right near the top if you're crossing high on the avalanche path like you should be. Then you might be right near the fracture line and you can sidestep or, or you know, gun your snowmobile and get up off that slab onto the bed surface and dig in and stop yourself. Um, or if there's a tree right there you can grab onto, um, then that um, could, can save your life also. And, you know, just get off that slab if you can. Most of the time you can't get off the slab. It's going to take you down. And then you've kind of run out of choices. If you've got an avalanche airbag, you, of course, want to pull the trigger to inflate the bag. If you've got an avalong, you can put that in your mouth and start breathing through it. Um, prepare for the ride. And then um, protect your airway. Put your, um, your, your mouth into your elbow so you can breathe that way and hang on to your pack strap. And when you're getting tumbled in an avalanche, every breath you take just injection molds your throat and mouth with snow. It gets instantly plugged up with snow and you can't breathe. So you need to protect your airway and put your, put your mouth in the crook of your arm so it can filter that snow out as you're getting tumbled. And then it helps to protect your face too from hitting trees and rocks on the way down. And then it's just gonna, the avalanche is just gonna tumble you. And then as the avalanche starts uh, coming to a stop, uh, sometimes the snow just instantly freezes up before that avalanche comes to a stop. So um, try to swim, get to the surface. If you can, thrust an arm up if you know which way is up so that your friends can see your hand sticking up if that's all that's sticking up. Uh, swimming sometimes works to get yourself to the surface. Uh and um, then you're locked in place. There's nothing you can do. Your friends have to dig you out. You cannot hardly even move your little finger if you're completely buried in snow. It's and very, so, very frightening. So this all happens really fast when it's when it's happening, doesn't it? 
Yeah, if you look at the videos of avalanches, like in the No Before You Go video, you see that they all happen really fast, you know, within seconds. You know, you see the slab break, and you've got about a second or two to do whatever you can to get off that moving slab. And if you don't do that, then, boom, you're going down the hill at freeway speeds, get bouncing off of trees and rocks. It's really, really dangerous. And um, it's all over in just a few seconds. You know, you're completely buried or partially buried uh, at the bottom. So all these decisions that you're making, you have to just make in an instance, you know, to, to put your, you know, make a airway space for your face as the snow slows down or to stick your hand up. I mean, this is all happening in a flash. Yeah, it's good to think about all that stuff beforehand. You know, just imagine what you'll do um, so that you can do it automatically. Bruce, has there been um, any research done about when people get caught in relation to the risk ratings? You know, you have these avalanche centers um, putting out risk ratings, you know, um, low risk, moderate risk, considerable risk, and high risk. I feel like the, the statistics bear out that most accidents happen in, I think, the considerable risk range. Is that true? Yes. Uh, Avalanche centers uh, use this five-step scale. It's the international five-step scale, low, moderate, considerable, high, extreme. Or in Europe, they're, we, they always use the numbers, level one, two, three, four, and five, and the colors, green, yellow, orange, red, and black. Um, I prefer to not use the names, but the numbers and colors. I think that's a little bit better. But what that means, actually, is that the risk more or less doubles between each layer. It's not a linear scale. So level three is twice as dangerous as level two, and level four is twice as dangerous as level three. So if you graph that, it's a exponential graph. And we always see those scales as a, a linear thing, just as these colored boxes in a row. And so it's a really mistake to... to uh, to think of them that way. I feel like when I see them though, and the, and the statistics with people having accidents, it's, it's interesting to me that there are very few accidents in the high risk range. Is that because people are just heeding the warning and staying home or what happens there? Avalanche fatalities are the number of avalanches times the number of people. <laughs> so you need both. And by the time you get to high or extreme danger, level four and five, it's so obvious that things are dangerous. I mean, high sounds bad to people, and they won't go out there. And so the people are dropping off really, really significantly at those levels. And then down at the lower end of the scale, low danger, there's just not enough avalanches. So most of the avalanches uh, accidents are happening in the middle. So there's enough avalanche a risk, enough avalanche hazard to be a danger, but there's also a lot of people in those middle ranges. So avalanches times people equals deaths. And that's why most of the uh, avalanche fatalities occur in that middle level, uh, which is the orange level, level three, or called considerable. Another problem is that word considerable. I hate that word. <laughs> but we've had to live with it for years. It doesn't sound very dangerous. But no. if you look at the definitions, the definition is dangerous conditions. 
<laughs> that's the first thing. They might as well call it like most possibly <laughs> or something very <laughs> vague like that. Yeah. Um, so Bruce, what do you, what final parting words do you have for people who are just kind of transitioning from the resort, maybe trying to get into backcountry skiing this year? It's going to be a very busy year, I believe, as people are trying to avoid crowds uh, due to COVID. We're having ski areas kind of limit and um, and kind of control their daily use numbers. People are going to be wanting to go out into the backcountry maybe for the first time. What should people just do to get started to stay safe this year? If you're somebody who doesn't know a lot about avalanches, you're new to the game, it's just like going to the beach for the first time. I mean, you need to learn about, you know, riptides and shore breaks. So that's the first thing you need to do is just learn the basics of avalanches. Watch the Know Before You Go avalanche video, which covers the basics. And there's some tutorials online that you can look at the basics and take a class. Get all the right equipment before you go out. And then next, make all your decisions based on a system. And it's not as hard as you think it is. You know, you look at the Avalanche Center and see which slopes they're saying to avoid and then avoid those slopes. <laughs> and that's, you know, people miss that step a lot of times. They're really bad at matching the kind of terrain with the snowpack for the day. Remember that snowpack can be very uncertain, but the terrain is very certain. Whenever snowpack is the question, terrain is always the answer. And so choose appropriate terrain for the snowpack for the day. That will, you know, prevent almost all avalanche accidents. But people are just not very good at doing that. And for those who do go out there this year, um, whenever they're uh, out on the slopes, should they always be reporting to like the avalanche center afterwards, like providing data, providing beta saying, hey, we were just on the slope and it's looking good or the snowpack's a little questionable in this position? Like, should people always be letting avalanche centers know what's going on? Yeah, there's avalanche centers throughout the country. And these avalanche centers are run by nonprofits and people that work for not much money to try to keep people safe. So they depend. They're, they're, they're community avalanche centers, and they really, really depend on having everybody in the community to report back to them to tell them what's happening. Because there's only several people that are forecasting there. They can't be everywhere at once. So you, the most important information that they get is the feedback from everybody that's going out. You know, send a text, send a tweet, send a Instagram, whatever. Just get it back to the Avalanche Center um, and put a hashtag on it. Uh, each Avalanche Center has their own little hashtag where they can see things. Um, yeah, report back. That's great. And how should people use your books? Yeah, you can use one of my two books. Uh, Avalanche Essentials is the simpler one. Start out with that one. And then once you want to learn more, then you can uh, read Staying Alive in Avalanche Train if you want to know more technical stuff and all the details and kind of geek out on avalanches, which I love to do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the last thing I wanted to ask for you, Bruce, um, what is next for you? Um, do you see yourself still working for the Avalanche Centers? Do you have any new books coming out? Well, I'm retired these days, and uh, my wife seems to want to make sure that I know that I'm retired. <laughs> so we go out and have fun a lot. And we spend a lot of time wandering around in wild areas, mostly with my camera. Uh, we love backpacking and backcountry skiing and hiking and 
uh, mountain bike riding and just adventuring in the outdoors, in the public land that we all own. You know, what could be better than that? So we spent a lot of time doing that. Um, but I do spend, I work kind of part-time doing avalanche work. Uh, so my wife lets me do that, which is good because she knows that uh, avalanches will never let me go. And I, I love avalanches. So I'm still working on projects of my own, kind of puttering around on other books and uh, maybe videos and things like that. So uh, we'll see. Well, we wish you the best of luck on all of it. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, Mary and I, we just thank you so much for being on the show and sharing some insight with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on, Bruce. We learned so much. Thanks. Take care, Bruce. Thanks for a great and informative talk, Bruce. Really appreciate it. And we're excited for our next episode where we're going to stay with Bruce and he's going to tell us his harrowing and sobering story about being caught in an avalanche at Bridger Bowl Ski Area in the 1970s. He tells us what happens in frightening detail, how he thought he was going to die, and how ultimately surviving it led him to his path to becoming an avalanche expert. You're going to want to hear this first-person account of this story. It's actually the story that kicks off the most well-known of his three avalanche books, Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain. For now, though, while waiting for this next show, you can find his books at the Mountaineers Publishing House at mountaineers.org. We'll make sure to include a link in our show notes. Again, Bruce, thanks so much. We loved having you on the show, and we can't wait to hear from you in two weeks. Now, a couple other things for you, our wonderful listeners, before you go. First... We want to give a personal thanks to Heart Sierra and I See It Too for your recent reviews on the show. They're really appreciated. A basically, thank you to everyone who's left a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done a rating or review yet on any of our previous episodes, we would love it if you could. Now, I can't promise sending you pizza and beer, but I can promise that we'll be very appreciative. Ratings and reviews help the show get noticed, and it lets us know what we need to do to keep the show top-notch. Also... Don't forget to check out our new Instagram page if you haven't already. It's at Out and Back Podcast. And finally, don't forget to head over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to snag that sweet 50% discount on a premium membership. All right, everyone. This is Shanti and Mary. We hope you stay safe out there, and we'll see you again in two weeks on the Out and Back Podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Take care. Take care.